0: glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Uh, welcome everybody uh, to Philokalia Ministries and uh, to our discussion of fasting this evening under the topic to love fasting. And uh, this is uh, was an unexpected group uh, for Philokalia Ministries. We typically have a group on Monday and Wednesday on the and the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And about three weeks ago, I did this group for the college students at the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon and uh, was asked if I would be willing to offer it uh, to a wider uh, group and uh, also to have it recorded, uh, that it seemed to spark uh, a pretty strong interest. And even here in the last couple of days, uh, a lot of people seem to contact me about it. And uh, maybe just to give a little bit of a history as we get started and as as people continue to join, um, I first started reading about this about 35 years ago. And I came across an article by a Benedictine monk named Adalbert de Vogue, V-O-G-U-E. And uh, he had written an article uh, under this title, To Love Fasting. And the title itself captured my imagination because I'd never heard somebody speak of fasting in those terms before, that often it has a kind of negative connotation tied to it as being something difficult, uh, especially during the holy seasons, uh, difficult to maintain for a prolonged period of time. Uh, The experience of it is often seen as being unpleasant, especially when beginning Uh, People struggle with fatigue or headaches or irritability, and sometimes uh, in the course of, say, the season of Lent, someone will attempt fasting of some sort and find themselves breaking away from it after a period of a week or so, not able to maintain it. And so to come across this article, to love fasting, uh, made me uh, want to read more about it, uh, that I had been new to the catholic faith about 40 i've been catholic for about 40 years now so i was in the faith for about three years prior to reading this and was a novice of a religious community and i made a little mistake at the time i was so taken with the article that I photocopied it and put it in everybody's mailbox in my community, thinking this is great, what a wonderful article. Uh, But that was a big mistake, I found out. Uh, It was taken as uh, kind of inherent criticism, I think, or a suggestion that we should all be fasting in the way that the author suggested. And uh, that wasn't the intent, of course. Uh, I think, again, I was Uh, enamored with uh, what he was saying and how he's described it, even in this brief article. Uh, uh, Later on, a book came out in 1989, under the same title, where he describes the history of fasting, Uh, and the practice of fasting, even the physiological changes that take place or the challenges that one might face in the practice. And then what he describes as the the fasting that we see uh, emerge very early on in monasticism among the Desert Fathers uh, that opened up a kind of vision for him about the practice of fasting, uh, and its importance for the spiritual life. I think most of us have probably heard many homilies from the fathers about the tie between prayer and fasting in particular, or that uh, prayer without fasting is weak. Uh, but we might rarely hear it spoken about in homilies or talked about in groups or a specific plan or rule of life that puts it forward as something that will be a regular part. Of our spiritual life, that we would see it as something essential, uh, something beautiful, uh, and something that deepens our, our prayer, as well as helps us in the struggle with the passions. And so, something ultimately that we would come to love. And how we would come to love that, uh, so l- love such a thing, is part of what I want to discuss with you here this evening. Uh, my plan is to have this be uh, rather informal. You know, I'll pause uh, every now and again and open it up for questions or comments. Uh, you can feel free to write them in the chat section uh, as we're going along. Uh, sometimes that speeds up the process in terms of my responding. Or if you're uncomfortable with that, uh, you can just open up your mic and ask the question directly. So I've already mentioned uh, the, the words to love fasting. Uh, are intriguing and they're not my words. They actually come to us uh, from the role of, of St. Benedict. And uh, I mentioned in some of my previous groups that uh, I had a professor in seminary, I studied at a Benedictine seminary in Latrobe, uh, St. Vincent's, and he did his doctoral dissertation on joy in the role of St. Benedict. And as he studied the role, he found out that Benedict uses the word joy, most of all in his writings about Lent and the season of Lent. With the deepening of the disciplines that they would embrace as monks, including fasting, they also experienced uh, a greater joy uh, as these practices uh, were something not simply to be endured, but that would draw them into a greater intimacy with God. And so the fruit of this greater discipline uh, was not hardship, but rather uh, a joyful intimacy with God. And so that was around the same time that I was exposed to this, this article. And Benedict uses the words Jejunium Amare in the section on tools for good works. Uh, so to love fasting is one of the, the specific tools uh, for good works. And I think often when we think of works, we think of external practices of charity, which, of course, is true. Uh, but for the monastic tradition and in the monastic tradition, especially among the Desert Fathers, the inter- or interior life or works are, have to do with the struggle with the passions, and and ordering our desires and appetites towards God and the things of God. And so, Tools for Good Works, uh, under this title, Benedict would have this in mind. What is it that we embrace? And how do we embrace certain disciplines in the monastic life that open us up in a greater way to God, that helps us to love him in deeper measure, as well as love our brothers and community? To be able to to be vulnerable before them, to be able to endure perhaps insult uh, or neglect or or hardship in one way or another, but to enjoy it in the spirit of joy, the joy of Christ. And so when we look at this, though, and we turn our, our minds and our hearts to sacred scripture is where I would want to begin. I think we have this sense of... Fasting being a part of Christian asceticism, as I mentioned, and part of the spiritual life. Uh, But what Devogue captures for us is not only the connection with prayer, but with almsgiving as well. Uh, Peter Chrysologus, in his homily that's part of the Office of Readings for Ash Wednesday, uh, speaks of this three, three-footed stool, if you will, of pr- prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which are a part of our spiritual practices during this time. And so prayer, fasting not only deepens one's prayer life and creates a hunger and desire within oneself for God, but also by eating less, the monasteries had the capacity to give a greater amount of food to the poor in the area and the cities that would be nearby their monasteries. And so it allowed them uh, to give greater alms uh, because they were not spending as much or needing to have as many uh, meals throughout the day, but also as many parts of those meals through the day. So they were saving a great deal of money and resources in the deeper fasting that they had embraced. And so Lent is referred to as a joyful season. And if you're a Latin, right, Christian, you've probably already uh, become familiar with this in one of the Eucharistic prefaces uh, during the Mass that describes Lent in specifically this way as a joyful season. Uh, And yet it's hard to wrap our minds around this when it is tied to self deprivation of not eating or satisfying a fundamental appetite that we have as human beings and our appetite for food. And so, as I mentioned, it's often tied to a kind of affliction spiritually for us uh, or has this kind of odious connotation to it. And uh, I think this has been changing over the last 20 or 30 years and uh, Uh, It was interesting, one of my earliest experiences with this was back in high school, uh, where I was an athlete, and I remember reading some magazines about weightlifting that was uh, certainly part of my training. And I read that a lot of these weightlifters would fast a few times during the week to, as it were, purify their system, they would say drink only juice uh, during the course of the day. And I remember being intrigued by that and even practicing that on on occasion uh, as a way of trying to remain fit, uh, but also to embrace some of what they had experienced. But I think in more modern times, we are beginning to make a greater connection uh, between the role of, of, of the body and the mind that uh, these two are inter- interconnected for us as sh- human beings. And uh, what we experience with one element of, of who we are also has an a- effect upon, uh, for example, our emotional life or you know the kinds of thoughts that we are having. Uh, and so I think across the board, we, we find more discussion about that, uh, of this unity between flesh and the spirit if You will, and uh, and, and so it can refine, uh, I think the way that we think about things, our awareness of what's going on internally for us as we become more aware of how we feel physically. We often become more aware of how we are uh, feeling emotionally, uh, but also of the kinds of, of thoughts that we might be having and how we are using our time. We just simply become more self aware, it deepens. Uh, I think our, our self-consciousness uh, through the practice. And so in our day, uh, we find people embracing fasting for all different kinds of reasons. And for health reasons, we've talked in some of the groups about intermittent fasting, that people are embracing it as a way to lose weight that they had discovered by eating only uh, during a certain number of hours during the day and fasting during the rest. That, that physiologically things begin to change for them, and they begin to shed weight rather quickly. And uh, so even just uh, on a secular level or on the level of health, we see uh, some subtle changes beginning to take place. And also within the spiritual realm uh, among Christians, and I've seen this among Catholic Christian men and women is the practice of something called Exodus 90. Have any of you heard of this before? Uh, It's uh, a practice of engaging in a spiritual discipline for 90 days. So preceding Lent, uh, uh, almost what we would do within the Eastern church with meat fair and cheese fair where we gradually begin to deepen our fast and abstinence. And as was true also in the Latin Rite in earlier times, uh, where one would begin to prepare oneself spiritually for the upcoming holy season uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, But what I've seen emerge is this practice of Exodus 90 that involves a whole host of spiritual disciplines, cold showers, sleeping on the floor, no television, no use of of technology. It's very rigorous and very demanding. And uh, But what I found to be curious over time is that I'll hear individuals say, oh, yes, I did that once, and it was great. And so you get the sense that it was a kind of test of endurance and a very rigorous tested that Uh, getting up every morning and taking a cold shower I'm sure was not a great thrill to all these guys and uh, women have started something similar I can't quite remember the the name of it off the top of my head Uh, but that's it sort of drew uh, or gave rise to a question for me if it is something positive and if there were definite fruits experienced through it why would it only be done episodically or maybe even only once even by those who are putting it forward and advertising it as being a good and powerful thing on a spiritual level uh we when we look at uh, uh things across the world we we see fasting done for a whole host of reasons sometimes as political protest Uh, Remember Gandhi is probably one of the the most famous examples of this, who would undergo uh, fast or uh, would eat nothing at all in the face of violence within his own country uh, and to bring an end to it. And so often it is seen as a kind of instrument of political protest uh, or solidarity, I think, with those in the third world, with those who go to bed hungry every night and who lack the things that we have available to us and uh, take for granted. And if you've ever talked to somebody who, who comes from a third world country and goes into one of our grocery stores, it's almost a kind of shock that they go into when they see the, the sheer abundance of food that is accessible for us. And uh, when, when they would often have to go without eating for, for days days on end. And so to show a kind of solidarity in one way or another, either through the practice itself, or then also to tie that to a kind of almsgiving or giving to charity or offering one's time and going to uh, poor places to serve the poor. Uh, and medically, we also know that it's, uh, tr- Treated, or used to treat people that are overfed. And so over the course of the last 30, 40 years, one diet fad after another uh, to limit caloric a- intake or to change the way that people were eating to, as a cure for anything from insomnia to headaches to schizophrenia. That uh, fasting was embraced for, for all of these, these different reasons. Uh, And part of it is the idea was to cleanse the body of its impurities or to change our metabolism. And in doing that, we can alter one's mental state. And there is truth to that. And I think that's something good to keep in our mind. It's not our goal, uh, but sometimes it can alter one's interior state and bring a, a kind of state of peace of mind to a person. One's brain chemistry can change in and through it. And so the motivation for fasting over the course of the years has been uh, broad and, 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 and very deep. And when we begin to look at scripture and look at it from a Judeo-Christian perspective, we see uh, some of the specific reasons. Uh, for it. But maybe before we, we jump into that, does anybody have any comment about the specific practices that I, I mentioned or anything that comes to mind? Or any experience of something like Exodus 90 that you will want to talk about? For women, it's called fiat. 90. fiat. Uh- Thank you. Yes, Father, I, I've been doing it. Uh, I don't take the cold showers, and uh, okay. so I, I, I limit some of that. I haven't been doing the exercise as much, but I've been focused on the fasting, right. and got very excited when I saw your link. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think uh, you know we uh, uh, the uh, Isaiah fifty eight. Mm-hmm. comes into mind mm-hmm. um so if it's a, a wednesday or friday I, I attempt not to watch any news or tv and try to deplug plug not just just food fasting but but from anything electronic and it's it's somewhat difficult because i teach but nevertheless uh, i limit that but um i i met uh, uh, some students who were doing f- fiat 90 that's how i got this name for women okay very good thank you And yes, you know, across the board, I think people have described it as something that they experienced as fruitful, Uh, but where does it lie within the Christian tradition and within the spiritual tradition of, of the church as a whole? And that's what I would hope to get to here this evening and how we move from an episodic uh, practice of it, or tied to various things such as political protest or solidarity or, uh, or health reasons, to tying it more specifically to Christ himself. And this is what I think Devogue does in an extraordinary fashion for us. Uh, when we look at scripture we, and fasting in the Old Testament, there are a number of different reasons, uh, repentance often being the key reason for uh, for one's sins and uh, specific uh, holidays in particular. The, For example, the Torah requires fasting simply for one day at Yom Kippur and uh, Rosh Hashanah. So the, the, the last 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur uh, would be. Uh, tied to the experience of Moses being up on the mountain uh, prior to bringing down the second uh, set of tablets of the law. And there had been this disobedience, as we know, a golden calf is made, and uh, Moses destroys the first set of, of tablets. And so this holiday is tied to, to this experience and the penance that is tied to it as well, this disobedience to God, and, uh, but it was limited and currently limited to one day of practice, very strict, uh, no eating, but simply for the one day. Uh, later Jewish tradition added four days to commemorate the events that led up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That uh, in the year 70 AD, uh, much as what our Lord had foretold, uh, the the city was uh, burnt to the ground and many perished in the process. And so in commemoration of this event, four days of fasting are are embraced uh, in memory of it. Samuel and the Israelites fasted as they put away their false gods of Baal and Ashtaroth and returned to Yahweh. And so in 1 Samuel, uh, we see fasting again taking up, taken up as a penitential practice uh, because one had turned away or a group of people had turned away from, from God to the, the false gods of the country uh, that they perhaps happened to be in. And this happens, especially during the time of of the exile, when uh, when basically so many were forced to to intermingle in other cultures and eventually would marry, but also take up the practices of the religion of a particular culture. And uh, and so turning away from these false gods often would be um, uh, tied to the, the practice of fasting as well. Uh, it was also part, and this was interesting, part of the Israelite preparation for battle. That one would fast, uh, as we see in the book of Judges 20 and Chronicles 20 as well. That uh, prior to going into battle and as a way of seeking God's uh, strength and, and, and help in that battle and victory, that fasting would be, would be taken up for this purpose. Uh, Daniel, and so if you look at Daniel 9, in particular, 9.3, uh, fast as he prays to God to grant him the ability to understand the scriptures. Uh, so he's tying his, his fasting, praying for greater illumination, that God would open his mind and his heart to the word, that he might understand it with a kind of clarity, uh, you all remember the story of the city of Nineveh, of course, where Jonah passes through the city uh, uh, foretelling its destruction. And so the king has everyone in the city, uh, including the animals covered with sackcloth and ashes, and they all fast. And the uh, disaster, as it were, as the calamity that was to come upon all of them was averted uh, through, through the practice, through the conversion of heart. Uh, So all of this involves a kind of humbling of oneself before God and sometimes of of entire community, communities of people. So not uh, necessarily an isolated practice, but very much like for for all of us during the season of Lent, something that a whole group of people would embrace together as a way of turning toward God and away from, from evil or sin and seeking God's grace or strength for one, for one reason or another. And uh, so I know that's just a cursory view uh, of the Old Testament, but uh, n- nowhere limited in time. Uh, just wanted to give you a, a little bit of a sense of how it was practiced. And I think this was mostly my understanding uh, of fasting, was seeing it as penitential, Uh, and tied specifically uh, to one's sin. And certainly that's true. And I think when we understand that our passions are often rooted in our appetites and our desires, and, uh, and the fact that they are so often disordered and directed simply towards satisfying ourselves rather than seeking the will of God, we can understand why fasting would be taken up then, not only as penance for our sin, but as a way of bringing order uh, to our appetites. And so when we begin to look uh, at the New Testament, uh, one of the things that steps forward first for us, especially during Lent, is the fast of Christ himself, that he identifies himself in a radical way in his humanity, With sinners. And so we first see him, uh, as he comes out of his ministry, uh, standing in line with them in the River Jordan to be baptized with John's baptism of repentance, despite being sinless himself. And his preparation for the beginning of this ministry was being driven by the Spirit uh, into the desert for 40 days. So after at this point, the spirit descends upon him. And we're told in the Gospels that this very spirit drives him out in the desert uh, to fast for 40 days and there to do battle uh, with the evil one. And I think this is an important thing for us to comprehend uh, that we aren't fasting simply in accord with our own will or our own judgment or for ourselves but as a response in particular to God and to his spirit of love drawing us to himself or preparing us to embrace his will in our life. And so in imitation of Christ, we take up this this practice and in particular these 40 days uh, to struggle again with our own sins, with our own passions, but to open our minds and our hearts in a greater way to embrace the gospel in our lives. So it's a time of deep uh, self-reflection for us to see how we are living our our lives, whether it's in accord with the gospels, with the Beatitudes, whether we love God with our mind, heart, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And uh, so it's uh, a way that we are uh, enabled to be guided more fully and deeply by the, the spirit of truth. And in some of the groups, you might remember uh, me describing humility as truthful living. Uh, Michael Casey, who's a Trappist, uh, defines it in this way. And I've often found it to be intriguing as well, that part of our fasting involves a humbling of the body that then also humbles the mind. And it allows us to see with a greater clair- clarity what's going on interiorly where our appetites are found, or where they're disordered, where they direct us. Uh, in the humbling of the mind and body, when we find ourselves, especially towards the end of the fast, uh, we often find ourselves more aware of what's going on in those thoughts, or where, where we struggle. Our main passion, perhaps, that we struggle with, often begins to manifest itself with a greater clarity to us. And so when we... This is a good starting point for us in our reflection upon fasting to look directly to Christ, as is true with all of our practices in the spiritual life, that Christ is the standard for us, the model for us. And so we see him and his desire to be ever faithful to the Father's will, uh, to embrace his humanity in all of its fullness, to experience its poverty, including our hunger and uh and to experience it in all of its fullness and they're also to do battle with satan himself and we know uh the first of those temptations that he experiences uh is uh because of his deep hunger and coming out of the 40-day fast you know why embrace the weakness of this human flesh cast off it, change the stones miraculously into bread, feed yourself, why Why put yourself through this, manifest your, your true identity and dignity as son of God, and I just want to make a little digression here, because I think it'll help us ultimately to understand um, why we see Christ do what he does, that um, we, we see in these temptations in the desert, uh, Christ undergoes something similar to what we see in Adam and Eve, that our temptations are typically directed towards our passions and our appetites, or what we struggle through concupiscence, a weakness of our will and a darkness of intellect. We often don't see things clearly, and so take the wrong path. Or even when we do see them things clearly, we don't embrace it. Uh, we our will directs us in a way that it's contrary uh, to the will of God. Uh, but when we look at the temptation directed towards Adam and Eve, it's towards their self-identity. And when we listen very closely to the what, what the serpent says to them, take, eat of the fruit of the tree and your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil for yourself and you will become like gods and they embrace embrace the illusion that they would take for themselves the prerogative that belongs to god alone this capacity to judge between good and evil and they would have it for themselves and we see how quickly in stepping aside from the identity that god had given them and the blessings that he had given them how quickly they who would be God suddenly could not even control their own passions and desires. They begin to hide themselves physically, to clothe themselves in their nakedness. And they even seek to hide themselves from God as if that were a possibility. And so that communion, that constant communion that they had with Him, was broken uh, in this irreparable fashion. And we see the same kind of temptation directed towards Christ, that it wasn't directed towards uh, a weak will or uh, uh, a darkened intellect, but rather, again, towards that self-identity, and this time in his embrace of our poverty, our humanity. And in each case, it's tempting Christ to take that same path, cast off the poverty of your human flesh. Change the stones into bread. Fill yourself. And then taking him up to the top of the temple, fling yourself down. in this great sign, it's said that the angels will come to protect you. So manifest your identity to everyone. Cast off the flesh and its weakness. Fling yourself down from the parapet of the temple. Or finally, seize by divine right what is yours alone as son of God. So take all of the riches of this world for yourself. Again, take, let go of the, the poverty, this path of poverty that you've embraced for yourself, both in flesh, uh, but also in terms of the experience of the, the weakness of that flesh within this world. It's suffering, uh, it's want, uh, and uh, bearing the hardship that would come to him and ultimately the cross. And so in preparation for this, he is driven by the spirit into the desert to do battle, to begin this battle. And we see him come emerge out of, of that with this clarity uh, uh, that is manifest in his response to the serpent. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Uh, So in each case, he responds not directly to the evil one, but quotes rather the scriptures to him. And so enters into this battle and fully embraces his father's will. Uh, But not to prolong this any more than necessary, this becomes the beginning of his taking up of his ministry and a source of strength for him while he knows the physical weakness of it and the humbling of it. He also knows the the presence of the spirit in a a radical way and commits himself fully to embrace the Father's will even to the end. And in doing so then becomes the model for all of us in the spiritual life that we are to take the same path, humility, obedience, embracing poverty, poverty of spirit. And one of the ways we, we do that is through a kind of authentic f- fasting inspired by the Holy Spirit that shows us over and over again that our life is more than food. And certainly Christ would show us this in a radical way, uh, not only through his practice of f- fasting, but in nourishing us upon. Uh, his own word, but also nourishing us upon it, not only in an audible way, in a way that we hear, but that we receive into our very selves. That the word that we hear proclaimed uh, from the gospel and preached about is received in and through the gift of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, And so that we are enabled to understand the will of God and are given the strength to embrace it by the grace that is given to us in and through the Holy Eucharist. The word of God becomes flesh for us and we are drawn into this intimate relationship with God himself. We begin to experience ultimately that what God desires to give us, which is deification, something greater than the original innocence of Adam and Eve, we are drawn, and then through Christ's embrace of the poverty of our humanity, taking it upon himself fully, uh, we are drawn into the very life of the Holy Trinity. Our humanity, especially our feast, I think, as Christians is the Feast of the Ascension, where Christ ascends uh, with the risen body to the Father. And we get a glimpse of, our destiny and our dignity in him, that our very humanity is elevated to a participation in the very life of the Godhead. And so we want to begin uh, with a very clear understanding of what we see in Christ and also seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we take up this practice so that it doesn't become redirected back towards ourselves as so so often happens uh, for us in the spiritual life. You know, one of our great struggles as human beings is a kind of self-focus. Our ego uh, often seeks to take hold of things uh, for ourselves outside of that relationship with God. And we often are drawn into pretty deep uh, delusions in our life and often destructive ones. And as religious people, Uh, we are capable of the greatest delusions, uh, because we often will tell ourselves that this truth or this idea comes from God. This is something that God wills, when in reality it arises from what we've really made our God, our ego, and uh, we are, are following that and holding on to that vigorously. And so, The humbling that takes through fasting is one of the ways that we loosen the grip that ego has on us, this desire to satisfy the self in any way possible. When we look a little bit further in the New Testament, we see uh, a connection between fasting and healing. And uh, this is one of my favorite stories. It's in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter nine. And uh, remember, we've mentioned it many times in in some of the other groups, but I'm sure you all are familiar with it. It's where uh, there's a young boy whose father desperately seeks the assistance of the disciples, of the apostles, that he has an affliction that constantly throws him down, sometimes into water, sometimes into fire, and the father is fearful that it's going to end in his destruction and so he asked the apostles if they would heal him. And it's a curious gospel. If you read it closely, uh, it's almost as if they do this and want to do it outside of the purview of Christ. Uh, it's not until after they fail to heal the boy and the father approaches Christ himself, telling Christ that the disciples were unable to heal him. Uh, that they, uh, what their purpose is found out, as it were, that our Lord sees that they tried to do this uh, on their own. And so the father begs our Lord to heal him. And the Lord does indeed heal him of this affliction. And it's only after the healing takes place that the apostles approach the Lord and ask why they were not able to do so thinking perhaps, well, you know, what good is it being a disciple if you can't do the same thing that your master does and, uh, and outside of, of his influence? And our Lord simply says to them that such afflictions are overcome, only overcome by much prayer and fasting. And not every manuscript has this in it, the, the addition of the, of the word fasting. But uh, it is consistent, I think, with the teachings of Christ and what we see within him and what we see in the spiritual tradition, that it is in the humbling of ourselves completely before God, in mind and body, that we open ourselves to the action of his grace and his healing, not only in our life, but in the life of others. And there are such afflictions that are so tied deeply Uh, to who we are as human beings, or that they are afflictions that are rooted uh, by uh, an oppression by the evil one, uh, that they're only overcome uh, by, by the grace of God. And so one has to abandon oneself as completely as one can, in order that God might be able to act without any impediment. And so he says, only overcome with much prayer and fasting. And for us, uh, in our practice of fasting, and in our struggles with our own passions, perhaps things that have afflicted us for decades of our life. Uh, think of the, the man at the pole of Siloam, who for 38 years was laying there and trying to drag himself into the churning waters to know their therapeutic power. And every, every time he tries to, somebody pushes him out of the way and uh it's only when uh he uh when christ comes into his midst that uh he is able to be be healed and uh some of us probably have suffered from afflictions for far more than 38 years uh if we're honest that there's some things that uh take us into their grip and that we give ourselves over to in an habitual fashion that they become deeply rooted, almost a part of us. Uh, I think the language of our day has become addiction, whereas in the language of the fathers, it's much more passion, a sin that has become habitual and deeply habitual has taken root of to the point that we lose the power to free ourselves from it altogether. And it's sort of, uh, the fathers often describe it as uh, a battle in the spiritual life. If we uproot a sapling, uh, when it's in its tenderest years, we can rip it up roots and all, but once it has placed down roots and has, has grown into a tree, we can wrap our arms around it and struggle as we may, we're not going to uproot it. And so a passion is similar to this, that it's something that has taken root so deeply within us that only by the grace of God can such a thing be overcome, not, not by the strength of our own will, not by endurance, uh, but purely by, by the grace of God. And so we he- hear this in this story of the heal- healing of the young man, and I think the first time that I began to pray about this and read that text is when things began to shift for me about the importance of fasting and the link to prayer. Uh, and uh, that there is a kind of deep humbling that opens us in such a way to God through joining the practices together. And so we hear the fathers say that prayer without fasting is weak. Uh, which is an extraordinary thing to say, because it's telling us that our faith is incarnational, that our God took our flesh upon himself, and in taking it upon himself also redeems it. And uh, and that which has not been embraced has not been redeemed. And so everything about us as human beings now be- can become for us an instrument of union and communion with our God. And this is part of the reason that he gives us things such as baptism and the, the Holy Eucharist, You know things that are very human and common to us, eating, drinking, being washed, that it might not be abstract for us, but very concrete because this is our experience of ourselves as, as human beings, embodied spirits and our bodiliness will always be a part of who we are as human beings. Uh, Even in the experience of the of the resurrection, what that will look like, we don't know either other than what we see in Christ, but nonetheless it's an, an important aspect of our identity and our uniqueness, even as we enter into the fullness of communion with the Holy Trinity, that will be a part of who we are. And so we, we can't ignore these parts of ourselves as human beings. We can't turn our faith life into a purely notional experience, something of the mind, what we believe, purely creedal, you know, something that we can proclaim, but it has to involve the whole self, uh, our body, emotions, intellect, reason, imagination, memory, all of it is to be touched by, by the grace of God. Um, When we look a little bit further, we see the the disciples fasting, or one might say the lack of fasting among the disciples. And this is where our understanding of fasting is altered, that we see something unique and distinct emerge within Christianity and uh, in and through Christ we find Christ being uh, questioned uh, that, you know, why is it that the disciples of the scribes and the Pharisees, and even the disciples of John the Baptist fast, and yet your disciples do not fast? And if you remember, it's in in Mark, uh, one of the places is Mark chapter two, verses 19 and following, Our, our Lord responds by saying to them, they, they have the bridegroom with them. That this is not a time for fasting, but rather for feasting. Uh, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. That what Christ is pointing to here is that an altogether new kind of fasting will emerge, not one that is simply tied to uh, doing penance for one's past sin, although that continues to be true for us, or seeking illumination in terms of our understanding of the will of God, or understanding of the scriptures, or preparing ourselves for something difficult in our life, a kind of spiritual battle that we might have to wage. But now it becomes tied to us precisely with our intimacy with Christ and our hunger in particular for his love, what he alone can satisfy for us as he who is the bread of life. And so Christ tells them they have, while they have the bridegroom with them. And you have to remember that within Judaism itself, uh, they saw Israel was seen as the bride of Christ and God the, the bridegroom that there was this unique relationship that he had with the chosen people. And this uh, uh, continues into the New Testament with with Christ that in and through the incarnation that he has come to unite himself with his bride in an altogether unique way by taking our, our weakness, our poverty upon himself, including our sin and the consequence of our sin, death itself. And in doing so, also making himself uh, the source uh, of life for us, that he becomes the Passover lamb, uh, the the means through which uh, we are freed from the judgment of that sin and through our faith in him and receiving him in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, The bride and the bridegroom are made one. The Holy Eucharist should always be for us a moment of consummation. Christ gives himself body, blood, soul, and divinity to the church, but to each soul uniquely and withholds nothing from us. And likewise, we are to withhold nothing from him of our love. And But our fasting and the hunger that we experience within it The desire that we experience within it is now forever linked for us to our hunger and our desire for Christ and what he alone can provide. And this is true for us, not only in terms of our bodily hunger for food, but for all of our desires as human beings, that we see within them a reflection of our desire for God and what he alone can provide us that he's made us in his image and likeness and, and made us in such a way that we only find the fullness of our identity and we only find fullness in him. And in many of our past groups, uh, for those who haven't been a part of them, we've, we looked at the word desire in particular, uh, desiderium or desideratum, uh, meaning a sense of lack, a sense of incompleteness, And so as Christian men and women, we never want our spiritual life to become, or for ourselves to become stoics, as if we we do not feel or desire anything, that that is part of the goal of the ascetic life, to free ourselves from pain or having emotions or having any desire at all. For Christians, it's the exact opposite. There is a kind of holy eros, a longing, a desire that is deep within us, that is part of how we've been created, and that can only be fulfilled and satisfied by God himself. And so in some of the past groups, we've talked about Augustine saying, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And similarly, we find throughout the, the writings of the Desert Fathers that we've been reading For many years now this language of desire uh, that all of their asceticism is not simply the conquering of the self or endurance uh, but rather uh, a drawing of oneself closer to God through holy desire and seeking to order our appetites our desire our every thought Toward God, knowing that He alone is the the source of of life and salvation, and when our asceticism, whether it's fasting or any other practice that we embrace, lose loses sight of this, when it becomes directed by you know uh, kind of an attitude of self punishment or or even uh, self improvement or conquering. Our our, ourselves in some ways it becomes distorted. The lens through which we are viewing it becomes distorted when we lose sight of why we've taken it up and it is to draw us more and more deeply into that relationship with God to open our minds and our hearts to him in order that we might be able to receive and embrace the grace that he offers us and that it might bear the greatest fruit possible for us, that we might be transformed by it, that love responds uh, by, by loving. It should be core ad core loquitur, as was Newman's Carl Newman's motto, heart speaking to heart, that all of our spiritual life should be a reflection of our yearning, for what god alone can provide us and it's in fasting that we see this in its most fundamental level and one of the reasons for that is because fat eating is one of our uh, primary needs as human beings and gluttony is one of our one of the fundamental sins that we struggle with uh, disorder and appetite and so Uh, In the description, for example, of the eight vices uh, that that are articulated by Cassian or the seven capital sins that we often uh, hear described in the West, kaput means uh, head. So these are the head sins, not necessarily mortal, but they lead to all other sins. And so gluttony can lead, certainly might not be grave, Uh, in in itself in one particular act. But when we overeat and we don't order that appetite toward God, it opens us up to the effects of our other appetites and desire. And the one that's most closely linked to that would be our sexual desire. So often gluttony, opens us up to the spirit of fornication. And so if a person is struggling with lust, the the Desert Fathers tell us, often you don't begin by battling with the appetite, one's sexual appetite or with the thoughts surrounding it, but you begin with ordering your appetite for food. And in strengthening your appetite and your will in one area, and strengthening this connection that you have in your mind between this appetite and your desire and hunger for God, you strengthen yourself in regards to the other appetites that we we have uh, as human beings. So they would see the capital sins as linked together as cars and a train. So gluttony, lust, avarice, that these would be the first in that train, if you will. And to gain strength or mastery over one is to gain strength over the others. And likewise, to give oneself over to one is to weaken self oneself in regard to the others. And so if we are looking at Christian fasting in particular, and looking for what is unique and distinctive, it is in what we've talked about here that it is something that is guided and directed by the spirit, that Christ himself becomes the standard for us in the practice of it, and that our practice of it is linked forevermore to our desire for him and what he alone can provide. So again, it's not simply a strengthening of our will or taking penance upon ourselves Enduring something for whether it's 40 days, 60 days, or 90 days, but something that should be feeding our and nourishing, if you will, our desire, deepening our desire for Christ. And so prayer and fasting become linked together as we feel and experience on a bodily level that hunger, that desire emerge then often there is this deepening of prayer, especially when we consciously connect the two in our mind. And so when we look to the writings of the Desert Fathers in particular, they said that the prayer typically becomes the deepest before the breaking of the fast. When the mind and the body has been humbled, when the mind and the heart has been stilled, and one is capable of listening and being radically open to God, and it's, it's then that the, the prayer becomes deepest and through experience, this is what the, the, the fathers began to see and experience. And this is why they embraced it, not episodically, but as we will see in a regular way. It was called the regular fast, that they fasted every single day of their life and in a particular way. And I'll I'll get to that. And this is the focal point of Devogue's book and what allows the love of fasting to begin to emerge, the experience of the regular practice of it and the fruit of it. But before we go there, does anybody have any comments or questions or anything that they would want to add about what we've talked about here in regards to the unique and distinctive Christian
1: fasting. Is it clear so far to this point?
0: Okay. Now, in reading DeVogue's book, and his last name is D-E-V-O-G-U-E, Adalbert DeVogue, To love fasting. And you might have a little trouble finding a copy of it at this point. Uh, I'll start doing some research because it's really wonderful. He covers the history of it, but even the physiological changes that take place, some of the pitfalls that we need to avoid, but then also talking about the, the fruit of it that he had experienced in and through the practice. And so, what he's inviting us to is not only this new vision or a clear vision, I won't say new because it begins with Christ itself, but connecting us with a greater clarity to this Christ, distinct Christian view of fasting, but also inviting us to begin to experience, uh, to experiment with it in such a way that it becomes a regular part of our spiritual life, that it's not practiced episodically, and because what we experience when we practice it episodically is our body go into rebellion. That when we lessen the caloric intake, we begin to experience physical weakness and fatigue. We get headaches. Our mind becomes foggy. Sometimes we become, become irritable. Some of the monks say, you know, if we, when we fast without love involved in it, all you get out of it is bad breath. Because having nothing in your stomach, this is what it produces. That's the the great value of it outside of love. Uh, But with love, it is something that can be truly transformative. And so when Devogway reads this in the role of Benedict, Jejunium Amare, it makes him go and look at every single monastery within the world, every single Benedictine monastery, to see what their practice of fasting was. And what he discovered is that fasting had all but disappeared or was practiced in a minimalist kind of fashion. In fact, the practice of most monasteries was to have three meals a day and often with multiple choices selections uh with a cafeteria that was open the entire day through so a person could go in and get that whatever they want whenever they want and i think it's it's pretty much what we experience in our day too that uh you know our kitchens are filled with food uh, we're often counseled to eat three times a day, sometimes counseled to eat smaller meals, but eat six or seven times a day, uh, and uh, but not, not uh, fasting uh, uh, being put forward. And so he found this consistent practice or lack of practice among the monastics, and it surprised him because he knew that in the role of Benedict, there was this uh, not only reference to loving it, but also a holding on to the older monastic tradition, which was to fast with this regularity of, of a 24 hour fast, where one would fast from the break of the fast, which would be typically the ninth hour, the third hour of the day, or sometimes a little bit later and then would not eat again until the same time the next day. And that this was not only seen to be sufficient in terms of sustaining a person, but would also deepen their spiritual life and their life of prayer. And so part of the role of certainly the Desert Fathers, but the early monastic communities, was either all the time or uh, if it was moderated, it was moderated lightly uh, to practice this regular fast. And so Devogué began to wonder, what, why was there this diminishment in the practice? And, uh, and part of it arose, you know, with the rise of larger and larger communities, the need to be able to sustain them, the need to be able to sort of produce enough things to make enough money to order, in order to have enough uh, money to to buy enough food to, to support the community. Whereas communities in the past would often produce simply what they needed for that period of time and would rely upon the providence of God to give them either what they needed in abundance or if it was a lack then to deal with that lack as it came. But as the communities grew and o- over the course of time, we see a lightening of the fast begin and a shift to other elements of the monastic life, in particular work, and work that was demanding physically. And so they began to see this kind of fast as not being possible with the rigors of their life. Now work has always been a part of the monastic spirituality and in order to provide for one's needs, but it was always done in this measured kind of way and typically done in a fashion where one could maintain a state of recollection. So a manual kind of labor that could even be done in silence so that one could continue to pray throughout the whole process, but it would not be done to extremes uh, and when we, a lot of us here have been reading the Evergatinos or the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and we hear these stories of monks being tempted by the demons. Well, if you continue cutting that wood, you would have enough supply to last you for many days, and so uh, one of the saintly monks would come by and see uh, a demon driving one of the monks to work harder and harder, either to provide or in order to provide greater resources for himself and so working harder and harder so that he would never find himself in want and so it was a specific kind of temptation not to trust in the providence of God and rather to trust too fully in the labor of one's own hands and so rather than the work becoming a part and being a part of their daily labor and being measured, at times it could go to extremes. And at this point, you know, where I went to seminary, the the mon- it's one of the biggest monasteries I, I, I know of. At one point, they had over two hundred monks. Uh, they run a college and run a seminary, and they basically keep the whole diocese functioning because so many of the monks go out and they actually live in the rectories of the diocese in order to provide for the sacramental needs of the people. And you know, one is thankful for that, of course, but I don't think it's what Benedict had in mind. In fact, he didn't envision um, monastic communities being much more than about a dozen monks. That beyond that, the, the, the kind of in, intimate atmosphere Uh, and knowledge of the other begins to break down, and certainly a community of a couple hundred monks, there would be monasteries within monasteries that would begin to exist, and so we see this gradual drop-off of some of the spiritual disciplines, altering them for what seem to be reasonable things or reasonable needs, Uh, but perhaps not Understanding the spiritual cost of that, or asking, is the cost of that too great? Or does it force us or compel us to diverge from the spiritual wisdom of the church that has taught us that this regular fasting uh, is something that not only helps us in our spiritual battle and our struggle with our own passions but leads to a deeper intimacy with Christ himself. And so this is the interesting thing, that de Vogueway begins to move towards the embrace of this practice. Uh, he becomes a hermit around, a Benedictine hermit around the age of 50. And at this time, he begins the study and he, be, but he begins to take up this practice and he embraces it gradually uh, to test a number of things. You know, is, is it possible to do it, to get to a certain point where one is able not only to function and to function well, to remain healthy, to do one's work, and does it do what the Desert Fathers say that it does in terms of the spiritual life? And so he begins very slowly uh, to take up this fast. And to, to, for example, when we've talked about this before of letting go of a single meal on one day, like a Friday, letting go of the breakfast and going about his daily role and routine as usual. And he wanted to make sure that, uh, he wasn't lightening his work in such a way that people, you know, individuals or he himself could say, Oh, it's simply because you've reduced the rigor of your work. He would study for a good four hours a day, he would do physical labor, and he would walk eight, mile, eight or 10 miles a day vigorously. Uh, and so over the course of time, he began to embrace this regular fast. And he would allow the body to adjust to it uh, so that one would not uh, be tempted to quit because of what one was experiencing, the weakness or whatever might come, but also that one would be able to make that tie specifically to prayer, deepening one's prayer during this time of the fasting to make that connection concrete and tangible. And so he does this over the course of months And years until he reaches this point of embracing the regular fast of the desert monks of old and finds that he experiences nothing lacking in terms of his capacity to do the work. And he experiences exactly what they describe in terms of the deepening of the spiritual life, uh, what, what it's like towards the end of the fast of the value of keeping a regular fast of only 24 hours, so as not to extend it beyond that time, either to weaken oneself physically or to fall into pride. So the the keeping the fast regular and limited to 24 hours protects one spiritually. Uh, from weakening oneself and so not being able to fulfill one's spiritual role, but also falling into pride, thinking, "Well, I'm, you know, I've been specially blessed by God that I can expend this, extend this fast for two, three, four days in a row." And the fathers he found in their writings said, "No, that there's always a danger in doing this, that uh, and for the for the reasons that uh, I just mentioned." So he embraces this over the course of years and sees physiologically how he adjusted to it, the amount of food that he needed, that he was able to provide himself enough food at that one meal to remain healthy. And he says, you know, that at that one meal, he took a sufficient amount and of various kinds of food in order that he might be sustained well not to the point of gluttony, obviously, but eating a healthy meal for that one meal. And, uh, and was able to do this and found also that the number of dishes that he needed for that one meal once a day was far less than what was needed when you have three meals a day that the number of dishes provided at, for uh, three meals a day would be typically nine to 12 dishes, he said. And that his limiting his intake to that one meal a day brought it down to like three three or four dishes that he would have for himself as part of it. And so he makes this connection then not only between prayer, but also almsgiving, that the use of less food allowed him to have more in terms of resources that then could be extended to the poor, that more food could be given to those without because one was using less in the course of a given day. So he began to see in a concrete way this tie between these three legs of that stool that Peter Chrysologus talks about in that homily, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving being linked together, that fasting deepens the prayer, but it also gives us the capacity to share out of our own goods with with others who are are less fortunate. And, uh, And so it's a compelling work in that regard. And the thing that's most compelling about it is that he, he shows us the wisdom of the fathers in saying that the regular nature of it is essential, that it not be something that's episodic for us. And this is why I brought up Exodus 90, not to criticize it, because I, I think there's people have experienced great fruit from it. But it can be something that one does for a period of time, and even extended out to 90 days, uh, perhaps. But it loses this sense that we find within the spiritual tradition of the impact of fasting upon us on a daily basis and the deepening of our prayer, of the tie specifically to our hunger and our desire to our hunger and desire for christ and what he alone can provide and so as prayer should be like become like our breathing that our ultimate goal is not just to pray as a discipline but to become prayer that it becomes something that we acknowledge that god has made us temples of the holy spirit That it is his own spirit that searches the very depths of God, searches our depths, and unites itself with our prayer and elevates our our poor prayer, no matter how poor it is. And so the more we give ourselves over to it in an unceasing fashion, when we heed Paul's call to pray without ceasing, it becomes that for us. We become the very nature of what we love the most. And so we love God, we desire to enter into this communion with him. And the way that we do that is through our prayer. And if, if fasting is something that deepens that prayer and deepens that urgent longing within our hearts for him, and this understanding that he alone can satisfy that deepest desire, then likewise, we would want it to be a regular part of our spiritual life, not something that is episodic. Because if it becomes episodic, you know, our, the reality of our, our, of our humanity comes into play, that physiologically it's going to be something that's going to be very difficult for us to maintain. And if we're constantly adjusting, and because we're doing it episodically, we aren't going to be able to experience the fruit of it. And even one of the things that he talks about is every time we eat, our body shifts its mode into digesting. You know, our the, the blood moves to our stomach and immediately we begin, our body begins to process what it is that we've consumed. And this has an effect upon us, not only physiologically, but he says also spiritually, that being weighed down Uh, by the constant eating, we never begin to experience that kind of lightness and freedom in in mind and spirit in regards to our prayer. Uh, Often the, the fathers would say that it's almost impossible after eating a heavy meal or rich meal to go into the chapel and to pray that typically would, one would fall asleep. You only have to look at people after a Thanksgiving meal. They go in and turn the television on, put football on, and they're all sleeping. And part of the reason for that is because the body begins to digest the food. And when the focus isn't that, even on a physiological level, it frees us on a bodily level to, to enter into our life in all the ways that have been described, being attentive to our thoughts, being attentive to how it is that we are praying, our remembrance of God, uh, temptations as they approach us, how it is that we are working, how it is that we are engaging the person before us. Are we giving ourselves to them in love? Are we able to see within them something of that hunger and desire for something greater or the poverty that they might be experiencing, not only physically in terms of food, but spiritually that they might be experiencing. Are we able to see that because our minds and our hearts have been shaped by this desire and love for God on every level? And uh, this is where I think St. Benedict, certainly, and describing fasting in this way and the practice of it to love it is so important because we should approach, I think, all of our spiritual disciplines in the same fashion. Uh, Repentance, I'm giving a little group to the students tomorrow night on this as life's continual effort that we are constantly to be in this turning toward God. In our life, not only when we fall into a particular sin, but through our constant remembrance of God, through reading the scriptures, through unceasing prayer, through the reception of the Eucharist, uh, through other spiritual practices, vigils, read, uh, I think I said reading the scriptures, reading the fathers, all of these things to be moving the mind and the heart toward Him and deepening that attachment to Him. And so in a similar way, we should love and practice this uh, repentance, not episodically. Uh, And, uh, you know, one of the saints I was reading here, I think it's St. Isaac, said, you know, if, if our repentance is episodic, then our confession is not going to bear fruit for us. We might confess a particular act or sin, but we may not, uh, because we lack that movement, and that spirit of repentance, not take hold of the grace that is offered to us in and through the sacrament, in order to make this movement toward God and also away from the particular passion. We have a tendency in our life to compartmentalize things. And this is also true within the spiritual life. And or to treat our relationship with God and place it on an equal footing with everything else within our life. Not that other things in our life don't have value, but it is God that gives meaning and value to everything in our lives. And so He should be the focal point of all that that we do throughout the course of the day from the moment that we wake to our drifting off to sleep at night. God should be. First and foremost, on our minds, and so we we've t- often talked about the fathers praying the Jesus prayer and drifting off to sleep with it on their lips, and first coming into consciousness in the morning, and what's on their lips but the the Jesus prayer? The first their first thought is to call is calling out to God, who's the source of life and love for them, and so devogue's book. I think was a first step in this movement for me towards reading the fathers in a different way and understanding asceticism or the exercise of the faith in a different fashion, not simply as being disciplined or engaging in the practice of endurance, uh, but rooted in a relationship of love a response to a love that has been given to us uh, and a taking up of that love where we are seeking to reciprocate as fully as we can. And we see this in so many different parts of our life. And again, I'm sorry for repeating this for those who have been a part of other groups that this practice of asceticism is a human reality. It's not a Christian or a religious reality. We see it manifest in everything in our life that we love and give ourselves over to. So the athlete will order his diet, will limit it to certain foods. He will practice every single day. He'll lift weights, study plays. The musician will begin from the age of three. I mentioned in a previous group, my nieces, They would make them get up there at age three with a violin in hand and simply bow before a crowd of 500 people, just to get used to being up in front of that many people, thinking ahead to when they would be performing. So here at the age of three, they're engaging in the specific exercise of what it is to be an accomplished musician or an artist will do the same thing. You know, he'll engage in his work throughout the course of his life and give himself over to it. The academic, and most most of us know this very well too, that, you know, beyond high school, going to college, classes, study, research, uh, the the years that go into it, let alone the, the finance, financial investment that goes into it these days, that, we give ourselves over fully to what we love and that which speaks to the heart. And we should see this in an even more profound fashion in our relationship with God. If he is as uh, one who Augustine describes as the one who alone gives rest uh, to the soul or as the you know, Desert Fathers describe him as, you know, the one who fills that sense of lack and incompleteness, then our our deepest longing should be to exercise this faith or to enter into it as fully as we can. And when we compartmentalize, when we lose this sense of asceticism in our practice of the faith, Christianity is essentially an ascetic faith, an ascetic religion. And when it becomes simply notional, something within our mind or creedal, then, and we are not practicing it, we're not giving ourselves over to it, then it inevitably fades. And other things begin to dominate our minds and our hearts that take hold of them in a, in a greater way. And so, you know, when we look at the gospel, Christ himself says, strive to enter by the narrow way, the narrow gate. And we've talked about this in some of the other groups, the word agon being the root of that word, uh, from which we get our English word agony. So, like agonize, if you will, you know, that you strive to such an extent that you would sweat blood to gain what it is that your heart desires the most, or to fulfill what your heart desires the most. That we what we, we see within ourselves, what we see in Christ. For example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweats blood in his embrace of the Father's will, and in his embrace of our poverty out of love. That this is the one thing that captivates, if you will, is mind and heart. And it's the one thing that must captivate, capture our minds and our hearts as well, if it is to shape them. You know, if we lack this, then we become invisible. And the gospel does not become something that is concrete and tangible for others to see and hear. It becomes as flat as the page upon its upon which it's written and you know for ourselves when we hear john preach repent you know he should be as real for us as he was for the people in the jordan our faith should be such that it is if he's standing before us because he is if the word of god is living and active then that word should pierce our hearts as it pierced the hearts of those who first heard him And if Christianity has become irrelevant in our culture, in our day, we need to look no further than ourselves for the reason for that. It's our inability to make it something real and concrete. They are not seeing the presence of Christ, of that divine love, active within us. We're not simply called to be good people. And we're not simply called to avoid sin, we're called to something far greater. We're called to embody this divine love that has been given to us in Christ. And I I think, you know, in our own mind, our estimation of ourselves is often greater than what we would appear in the eyes of God. And uh, in one of our most recent groups uh, described something of what, you know, one saint said that what we see of the saints is the least part of them. That we see their sanctity, the how they prayed, the miracles that they worked, but we do not see this greater part like the iceberg underneath the water of all that God does in and through the action of his grace in their life that makes them who they are, the transformation that takes place on every aspect of their being. And uh, this, such a vision of Christianity and what emerges for us uh, from the monastic spirituality in particular of the Desert Fathers, I think strikes to the heart, it's piercing. And for all of you that have been following along with Everett and John Klamikos, you know this, that so many of the things are jarring uh, in the way that the gospel should be for us. You know, so often we hear those words, and I've mentioned before when how freely we say, you know, if in the Latin rite, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, when the gospel's completed, after we've heard him say, You know, do not resist one who is evil, you know, or you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As if, you know, we could hear that and not be shaken and ask ourselves, who are we? What is our identity? And I'll close with this, and then we can open it up with questions. Just that this little phrase I've mentioned here before of St. Francis of Assisi that he used as a kind of prayer that he would say over and over to him again. So simple, but so perfect. He would ask himself these two questions, almost like a prayer. Who are you, God? Who am I? Who are you, God? Who am I? you know, to compel himself to reflect upon the, the deeper realities of his existence. What, why is he in this world? Who is God? What does it mean that God has become one of us? What does that tell us about how who we are as human beings? What our destiny and dignity is? How we are to, to live our lives? And if we intellectualize the faith, if we compartmentalize it, then it allows us to s- simply move on with our life, pursuing the things that have greater value to us. And in so many of the groups i have mentioned what Sigmund Freud said, that it is an auxiliary construction. It's a psychological construct. Religion can become a psychological construct that makes us feel safe and secure. It's a defense mechanism that we would not part with, But it's in in this sense, it has nothing to do with the relationship with God. And while we would say no to Freud's atheism, I think we could say yes to that point, that we can very easily slide into that where our faith becomes exactly that, an auxiliary construction, a psychological construct that we might even hold precious but has no effect upon our lives or the lives of those around us. So any comments or questions? I I see some comments here in the uh, Matt Mondorf. I found that our physical bodies don't require much food. It's mainly our mind and habits that convince us that we are hungry. So to realize that and push through the initial hunger, knowing it's coming but will be okay, has helped me a lot then little by little it gets easier to go longer and longer eating healthily and moderately helps also it seems to my, to to me anyways yes you know this is one of the things that Voguë talks about that the hunger pangs that we experience typically cease 12 hours after we've eaten and so we can expect to be hungry but after a certain point our body adjusts and begins to nourish itself in other ways and that that feeling that we get within, within us loses its intensity. And so we can make our way along with the fast without being overly conscious of that. And you're right about the things that we eat. When it's rich, when it's heavy, uh, when it's over-processed, you know, it typically has this effect of weighing us down. Uh, rather than being something that nourishes us or makes us healthy or that gives us energy. And so eating in the way that you describe here is important as well, that sometimes we become become subject, the fathers tell us, when we give ourselves over to either over delicacy in what we eat, that we will only eat this or that, or we give ourselves over to things that are rich or heavy and weigh, weigh us down. So good good points.
1: Any other comments or questions? Anything that doesn't sit right with anyone?
0: So what is trying to do here is not telling us that we all have to become desert monks or that we would rush into the practice of the regular fast. But I think what he is telling us is that, we need to make it a regular part of the spiritual life, and that it is so essential, and that it is worth our experimenting with it in a measured way uh, to allow ourselves to see the fruit of it for ourselves. It's one ascetical practice among many, but what we see in the spiritual tradition is that it's a very powerful and important one.
1: comments. So this is my
0: first uh, great fast as uh, an Eastern Rite priest Uh, the last uh, 30 years as Latin Rite and it's challenging uh, because of the addition of the abstinence from certain foods and this goes back to uh matt's comment that there's this movement away from meat uh a couple of weeks in preparation before lent begins and then a movement away from all dairy and in some places even a movement away from the use of oil which i still haven't figured out how in the world that's done how one cooks uh without that but uh and You know, it's interesting that even the most seasoned of those who embrace the disciplines understand that it has to be done in a measured way, that one does not take up this kind of fast uh, without preparation. And sometimes it takes years in order for one to be able not only to do it, but to see the specific fruits of it. And this is true, I think, with all of our spiritual disciplines. That's to, for, say, Lexio Divina, our meditation upon the word of God, that every day we, we would prayerfully re- reflect upon something from the scriptures and maybe simply be a line or a few words, even from a passage, and something strikes us, we pray about it, we contemplate what has been revealed, but it might be years down the road before we see the fruit of that or the truth that is expressed to us or uh, has taken root in our heart begin to emerge in such a way that it strengthens us because of a particular spiritual battle or struggle that we are undergoing. The truth of it emerges in order to become a source of strength for us or for that practice to become something again that is regular and a part of our, our, our spiritual life.
1: Any thoughts, Father David? Can I ask a question? Of course. Um, when you talk about the regular fast and um, doing the twenty-four hour period, but as a regular option, mm-hmm. um, would that be something to add so that we, um, well, we have the we have
0: different fasting seasons through the church and requirements that go along with them. But outside of those fasting seasons, would the 24 hour regular thing um, be a good addition? I think so because a lot of the fasting seasons have a lot to do with abstinence. And there is a kind of uh, discipline and rigor in that and value in it. But whenever we eat, we are breaking the fast. And so we might be avoiding certain foods but uh, the moment that we eat is when the the fast ends for us. And so we might not experience uh, what the fathers, in particular the Desert Fathers, began to experience in their spiritual life by the practice of this regular fast of not eating for this lengthier period of time. And how we would do that, Uh, I think would uh, again to try to not do it only seasonally, which you may do that you during the great fast you might have certain days where you keep the regular fast where you don't eat anything. uh, Except for the one meal during that day, but throughout the course of the year, you might begin with letting go of one meal on one day while trying to deepen your prayer on that day and allowing your body to adjust to that practice. And then after six months or however long it takes to let go of the second meal on that day. So on a Friday, one might keep that regular fast, that 24 hour fast and deepen one's prayer, You know, t- taking it up for a particular intention, uh, or one's own need, or for the needs of others, but nonetheless to have it as a regular part of your spiritual discipline. Because in the Eastern rites, you know, I know it's, it's over, uh, 100, over 150 some days a year, 155 days a year that the fast comes into play in the spiritual life, which is good. But I think what de Vogueway is saying is that there is this part of our spiritual tradition that is extremely beautiful and fruitful in terms of our experience of prayer and our relationship with God and helping us in our struggle with particular passions that we want to regain. And that it's worth engaging in this discipline over the course of time to allow to emerge. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us here would work to the point where we're keeping the regular fast every single day of our life. But we might have that regular fasting as part of our spiritual life throughout nearly every week of the year, except maybe during the great feast uh, that we celebrate, that we typically are ordering how we eat, but on certain days that we are fa- of the week, we are fasting regularly, and often, you know, in in the church, this has been Wednesdays and Fridays, where a fast would be maintained, and it's become so limited in recent times to simply abstaining from eating meat on Fridays, and even this has faded from the mind because there's the uh, it's said, well, if you take up some other discipline, then you could go ahead and it's all right if you eat meat on Friday. So if you take up some other uh, form of discipline on that Friday, but then the impact of that has been uh, the movement away from abstaining altogether or taking up any discipline. And I think the bigger picture here is the ascetical nature of Christianity that shapes our identity as Christian men and women, where we are seeking to embrace what the life that Christ has made possible for us in the fullest measure. And so in, in all these different areas of our life, prayer, scripture reading, fasting, vigils, ordering how we sleep. Uh, You know, again, not to the point of excess, but or sometimes even breaking our our sleep to get up in the middle of night to pray. I remember in one of our groups, we talked about St. John Chrysostom saying that even with your little children, wake them up to pray with you and then send them back to bed, have them say a prayer and but to get them into this habit of breaking the night to pray to keep vigil, that this becomes something that is rooted in their consciousness, that that bears fruit. And I think part of the issue is that we've moved away from monastic spirituality, which, in in my mind, and in the mind of the the many Eastern writers, is really the essence of the s- spiritual life. That is here that we learn what it is to pray, what it is to struggle with the passions and how to, how to live the spiritual life. And we've distanced ourselves from that. Uh, and we've cut ourselves off from the spiritual tradition that we have little bits and pieces that we pull for ourselves. And it's not enough to lead us into a consistent practice of the spiritual life. And in the West, this is particularly difficult because even though many of the great saints were rooted in that full tradition, uh, they're often read, abstracted from it. And so people reading about John of the Cross, who was writing for contemplatives in particular, or those who are already deeply rooted in this ethical tradition. And so they're reading about the dark night of the soul and uh, that, you know, takes place when one has begun to walk more and more in the darkness of faith and has been freed from the impediments of the passion and has begun to abandon oneself with a greater freedom uh, to God's will, but also lets go of reason and intellect and allows one to be drawn along simply by faith itself and so begins to engage in this prayer of the quiet. And so let's go of words, images and ideas and uh, one, you know, can't dabble in the contemplative life and we have to ask ourselves what spirit are we opening ourselves to if we've never learned from the fathers what the passions are how we struggle with them, how the demons that we're not only struggling with ourselves and our own weaknesses, but against principalities and powers. If we've never entered into that spiritual battle and learned from experience what that means, then if we open ourselves indiscriminately to this practice of contemplative prayer, what are we opening ourselves to? Or will that practice be able to sustain itself? How will it form the mind and the heart? There was a practice not so long ago and I like his writing Thomas Keating about uh, centering prayer and one of the experiences one of the criticisms of it was that many people felt that it was abstracted from the ascetical life that it was too quickly exposing people with the desire of drawing them to prayer but too quickly exposing them to a practice of prayer without focusing on the formation of the mind and the heart. And when we neglect that, then we can be drawn into delusion. And the fathers understood this very well. Even those who were engaged in the ascetical life, there were quite a few of them that, you know, fell into, into great error or into great destruction because of their lack of discrimination. And so, you know, part of us really has to be willing to do the work. And, you know, part of what Second Vatican Council called us to is this resource month, return to the sources of our spiritual tradition. And we just don't have anybody who's going to do it for us easily. And I've heard priest after priest or people or person after person tell me, that this priest told them not to read the Philokalia or the Ladder of Divine Ascent or the Evergatinos because it's dangerous to do so without a spiritual guide. Well, okay, if you, there's a lack of spiritual guide, then what do you do? And what is the responsibility of those who are in the position of being spiritual guides to others? What is their responsibility to immerse themselves in this formative process themselves in order then to be capable of guiding others in their charge and if the church is turned into you know a business and you know we're focusing on fundraising or one program after another it's not going to endure very long The things in our culture appeal to the imagination, intellect in a far more powerful way than the church would ever be able to do when we try to imitate them. But when we preach the gospel, and more importantly, when we live it, that's what penetrates to the depths of a person's religiosity. That's what speaks to the heart. And that's why the church has always said, you know, it's the blood of the martyrs that really has been the the seed of faith throughout the ages when men and women have witnessed this deep love and faith, love of Christ and faith in him that has made them willing to embrace martyrdom on his behalf. I think in our country, we've more than ever tried to fit in, to blend in. And part of that was the immigrant culture that often made it very difficult for Catholics you know, to survive, to work. And, you know, we've talked about this before, the changing of the last names, you know, to uh, sort of, to be able to find employment and to fit into uh, a culture that was not like their own and certainly not a Catholic culture. And, uh, and the breakdown of catechesis and spiritual formation. And you know, even the breakdown of the priesthood, the scandals that have afflicted the church or have come to light in the last 20 years, the Lineker Institute did a study on it. And it's an independent institute. It wasn't from a religious background, but what they saw was a breakdown of the ascetical life. That for, for those who are embracing this life of, in uh, particular, the Latin rite of celibate life, And of living that chastely, of being able to order one's life to God, you know, outside of living that life, what one becomes open to is sort of a a self-focus and an egoism that leads to, you know, these narcissistic tendencies that then become these heinous acts that are almost unimaginable. And you know, to attribute it only to the psychological, I think is problematic. I mean, one of the reasons that this emerged is the presence of evil within the world and within with one's heart. That manifests itself in psychological ways and psychological distortions. But what, what is really behind it?
1: What is really the root of it? When it becomes an obsession of the most
0: distorted type. And the church made the mistake, I think, of following too closely the guidance of something very powerful, psychology, and what it was saying at the time, and its evaluation of those who were were doing these kinds of things. And so moving individuals around, rather than really looking to the tradition, if you go back and read St. Peter Damian, you know, even he said, Anyone found ever doing this should be imprisoned for a period of time, should never be able to function again, and never be able to travel on his own except in the presence of two others. This was like a thousand years ago, you know, where there was an insight into how to how to deal with it.
1: So I've blathered on for
0: a long time. But the book is a gem. And if if only, I think it draws us back to the ascetic life as a whole and allows us to see the richness of it and how essential it is to the spiritual life and the embrace of the grace of God. Okay, Any final thoughts or comments? Hi Father, this is from Adam. Should lay people share their Lenten fasting plans with their spiritual director in the same way St. Benedict instructs his monks to do with their spiritual father in his role? Yes, absolutely. I think we would want to avoid in our spiritual life as a whole uh, of simply following our own will or judgment that we would always want to lay this before our confessor or spiritual director in order to avoid uh, extremes. And, uh, you know, I, I think we, we live in a culture that prizes private judgment. And so to live in a spirit of obedience and to listen to what another who has an experiential knowledge of these practices would have to tell us about our own or a that they would give about our practices, is what we should do in all wisdom. I think this is what Christ himself lamented so often, was looking out at those who are like sheep without a shepherd. No, No guidance. And we live in a beautiful time on one level where we have access to all of these spiritual fathers as never before. You know, Isaac the Syrian, you know, his, in English, is the first time, in, tw- in the last 20 years, is the first time that we've had access to the full corpus of his writings. Same thing with John Cassian. You know, he's the one who brought this w- wisdom of the Eastern Fathers to the West. And it's really been only in the last, you know, couple of decades that all, all of the conferences have been translated into English, you know, for us to have access to. And so in some ways, we live in a blessed age where we have access to the greatest of spiritual fathers. Uh, but we need to have discrimination and discernment in the practice. So through confession, through spiritual direction is always best.
1: Okay. Any other final thoughts?
0: Sorry, that went a little longer than I anticipated. But uh, thank you for bearing with me. And it's, it's great to see you all. As always, you're welcome to join at any time uh, the, the groups that we have on Monday and Wednesday. The Avergatinos is four volumes long, and we're still in the first volume after two years. And so feel free to jump in. We're slow readers, typically two or so paragraphs a night. Uh, so feel free with Evergatinos or the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, to join us whenever you'd like. And uh that's why we do the podcast. So if you can't make it all the time, you're able to, to listen along with the group. Okay. So why we close there, uh, as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.